welcome to Old Timey Crimey. I don't know what happened there, but I... I you almost said tiny, and I then you're like, this is not the tiny, <laughs> this is the main episode. Yeah, yeah, I went a little off there. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here to tell you about a crime from history. Uh, the case of, I'm calling, uh, I'll tell you, that's a spoiler, uh, William Burke Kerwin. Yeah, we'll tell you the episode show notes at the end, so we can't spoil it for you. Yes, yes, very much so. So uh, this takes place um, on Ireland's Eye, which is off the coast of County Dublin. It's an uninhabited island. It does get visitors, so you can go by ferry these days. And the landing site accommodates, probably accumulates them too, yachts and kayaks alike. (laughs) (laughs) I got there on my yacht. I got there on my kayak. (laughs) I parked right next to you. Yeah. So no one has lived there for hundreds of years, but there's still ruins there uh, from a church and also the Martello, a Martello Tower, which is a type of tower, round fort built for defense in the British Empire throughout the 19th century. One of these could house between 15 and 25 men. Um, the, The walls were thick and curved, which makes them resistant to cannon fire. So it's a good defensive position. And if you go up to the roof, you can fire your heavy artillery. There you go. Very convenient. <laughs> that's, that's what I look for in a home. <laughs> right, right. It's defensive and it can take cannon fire. <laughs> <laughs> so the name of the island started as Innis Aran, and I apologize for any mispronunciations here. Um, then the Vikings came along and they also were mispronouncing things and they translated it to uh, Ireland's I, uh, E-Y, which is Norse. Old Norse for island. So it is technically Ireland's island, but then I got turned into the word I. So, so now it's Ireland's I. Yes. A weird little tidbit here. Uh, there was a study done of areas of scientific interest, and Ireland's I was found to have significant numbers of red ants with aberrant forms, specifically males with female parts and vice versa. And then how... There must be another way that you tell that they're males, uh, kind of like with ducks, how the drakes have the curly feather on the tail. That's the drake feather that tells you if it's a, if it's a dude duck. Oh. I, that's my guess. I have no idea because there wasn't any further study done to figure out why, but uh, it was the only place in Western Europe with that particular aberration occurring. Yeah, I, I find... I feel like they were probably getting bit a lot trying to look at the underside of the ants. Excuse me, ant. I just need to look at your penis. Or maybe not. I just want to take a peek, see. Yeah. So in 1852 is where we set our scene here. And this is right at the very end of the potato famine, which had killed around one million people in just seven years. Now, this island was a popular place to go for outings like hiking and swimming and sketching, and that was absolutely perfect for one couple uh, that lived in Dublin, William Burke Kerwin, 38, and his lovely wife, Sarah Maria Louisa Crow, um, and she goes by Maria. Now, at this point, um, they'd been married for 12 years with no children together. And uh, newspaper articles, all right, there were newspaper articles about the couple in the future that I feel downplayed and shrank their age difference. Because he was 38 and she was 28, but they would up her age to 30-ish and bring his age down to 35. But the actual records we have have a 10-year age gap. Yeah, quite a difference. Mm -hmm. So he liked to paint and he'd gotten a little bit of, of... success and fame. Not a huge amount, but, you know, it's something. And she loved to take a dip in the water. So Ireland's Eye was a great place for that because when you're in the Victorian era, maybe people might look at you like some flighty weirdo if you go for a swim. Yes. How dare a woman swim? How dare she immerse herself in water? That harlot, right? That watery, watery harlot. And especially if she had a (gasps) revealing swimsuit. (laughs) 
did it show her ankles? She took off her petticoats to swim. <laughs> Hand me your pearls. I need to clutch them. So they uh, they went. Uh, it's, you know, a nice day for an outing. Now, he wasn't so big on the swimming, but he would bring his painting stuff, and she brought her swimming stuff, and they also brought a picnic. So it sounds like it's going to be a lovely day. I'm sure nothing will go awry. A fisherman named Pat Nangle ferried them out to the island. Uh, this was not their first time going, and it wasn't his first time taking them. This was a, a kind of semi-usual thing with them. So Kerwin told Nangle to come pick them up at 8 p.m. I was a little confused about this because... Um, an article about this that was written in 1963 says that sunset was just after 6.30 um, at this time of year. Modern charts have it just shy of 8.45, so there must have been some shift in, um, you know, with, I don't know, daylight savings, if they do that at all, or if we're the only idiots. Um, I have no idea. So, but this uh, from the Evening Post about Nangle, he was back at Ireland's Eye by midday with a second party of trippers. When Pat's boat came in to take off, to take off this family party at four o'clock, the trippers noticed that Mrs. Kerwin was looking after them intently and a mite longingly, and even offered to give her a lift back to Howth, which is the, the harbor. Um, so there was some notice of them on the island. Uh, around six o'clock, it rained pretty heavily, which soaked the island's beaches. And then around 7 o'clock, a few people who were within hearing distance heard a scream, or a couple. One of them was a boatman named Tom Larkin, who was passing the island when he heard a single scream pierce the air. Then five minutes later, he heard another one was not quite as clear or as close. And then a few more minutes passed, and he heard one even further away. Um, he had other people on his boat below decks and he went down and said, Hey, did you guys hear anything? So I, I heard, you know, something horrible, some screaming and they were like, nah. And so they just went, uh, they talked him out of the idea of stopping at the island. So, and besides those, oh, sorry. There was also Alicia Abernethy. She lived by the harbor nearest the island, about one to two miles away as the crow flies. And she heard three screams and described it as sounding like a person in agony. And besides those two, there were three others who heard the three screams from the island. So this island is not a place where no one can hear you scream. It is, in fact, a place where several people can hear you scream. So around the appointed time, Pat and Angle came back to pick up the Kerwins. And the whole plan was to meet at the Martello Tower. Nangle got there and 50% of the Kerwins were there. Uh, William Burke Kerwin greeted him, and Nangle said, where's the mistress? Which, hmm. in like five minutes, go ahead and just say phrasing. Just going to say. And uh, Kerwin said, I haven't seen her for the last hour and a half. And then said that his wife had gone off to the swimming hole, which is called the long hole, hmm. for one last dip before they left. And it's about a half a mile south of the meeting point. Um... It's more like a, a tall cleft carved into the, the tall rocks that stretch up from the ocean. I cannot imagine, I don't know how you get down to the ocean from there. It's pretty tall. And um, yeah, I just don't see jumping off of it either. <laughs> like, I'm not really sure how this works, but I'm sure there must be a path because it was a kind of popular place to go. So they go out looking for Maria Kerwin. Now, while they're out searching... Let's talk a little bit about who the Kerwins are. So, specifically, we're going to get a lot of William Burke Kerwin. Um, we don't get very much of Maria, unfortunately. That's the way it was. So, he was born in 1814, and his family really tended toward the artsy side. He started early with that, and then he studied under a famed painter of portraits and miniatures named Richard Downs Boyer. He started as a student under Bowyer and then ended up working for him. Now, that professional relationship started in May 1836, but by October of the same year, it had gone way downhill. Uh, this from the Freeman's Journal. About October 1836, he induced Mr. Bowyer to pay a visit to his house. 
and his father and himself, together with two sisters, one of whom has since died, it is alleged entered into a conspiracy to destroy the life of the old artist, who was then upwards of sixty years of age, and to get possession of his property, which was considerable. When Mr. Bowyer had been about three weekends residing with Kerwin, who using this period endeavored with too much success by every means to alienate him from his wife by conducting, concocting unjust and unfounded accusations against her, the latter persuaded the old man to consent to hand all his property, including his bank book containing receipts for lodgments to the amount of $2,500, over to him. These were transferred to Kerwin's house, from whence they were subsequently removed to Fleet Street and from thence to another street. The manner in which the pictures, furniture, and other property were removed from Mount Joyce Street, where Mr. Bowyer's wife resided, is not the least remarkable feature in the case. Kerwin and seven or eight of his companions proceeded between the hours of one and two o'clock in the morning to the residence of Mrs. Boyer, who, to which they gained admission on the plea that they had been sent by her husband. The lady and her servant girl were locked up by them in one of the apartments, and the house was completely gutted of every article of value. So they basically kidnapped this old dude and also sort of coerced him and then invaded his wife's house and, and stole everything there. And uh, so it seems that this was this was a, a weird thing because there were also, um, on Kerwin's side, he had his story, which is that Bowyer himself said that his wife would murder him if he stuck around much longer. And he had shown Kerwin some head wounds his wife Anne had inflicted on him. Kerwin's lawyer said Kerwin was a medical student and was constantly annoyed by the language and importunities, which means begging, uh, of the woman. So basically, he's saying that she was throwing herself, um, or not, you know, she was hitting him. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, it, they're, they're very much coming up with a story that blames her, and she's got a story that blames them. Uh, Anne Bowyer took William to court in 1837. It seems like murder, theft, and assault were on the table, um, but that was uh, never really resolved. Um, and it, as far as where Bowyer ended up, we don't know really that either. One of his, uh, his relatives, who was a doctor, said that he had asked Kerwin about Bowyer and, quote, received a very unsatisfactory answer, which is all the specifics we get. So in my mind, Kerwin's answer was, um, he's up your butt. <laughs> but, uh, really, I have no idea. And it's every time... Kerwin was asked by somebody what happened to Bowyer. He had an altogether different story. Uh, one story was that he had ran off to escape his lunatic wife. And, you know, she was going to get tossed in the sanitarium. So uh, there are some accounts, though, that do have Bowyer moving to another county, so still alive, uh, saying that he um, left Dublin in 1837. Um, and after moving from place to place, finally settled in Kilishandra. County Cavan, where he lived under the name of Blake and died in November 1841. So it seems possible that there was no actual murder and maybe the story of the wife being a little. She had spent some time in a lunatic asylum, as they say, but that doesn't mean anything in this time no. period. No, it means nothing. So totally possible he ran away. Totally possible he's at the bottom of the sea. Yes, yes. I'd say it's 50-50. It's so uh, he was acquitted Kerwin was, uh, um, on a technical point of law for the burglary. Because one way or the other, it seems like the burglary did happen. And uh, he was also reportedly a Freemason, so make of that what you will. That's yep. all I'm going to say. I'm going to say. So, that was not the only trouble that Kerwin got himself into. Oh, no, 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 no. In 1839, a man named William Collins Jones... Uh, accused Kerwin of seducing his sister. <gasps> and yes. then proceeded to um, post that in flyers all over Dublin. Social media of his time. <laughs> yes, yes. Get it up on that lamppost. So uh, this from, uh, I'm going to cite my sources at the end, but the author of this is Gribble. Um, so in the streets of Dublin, flyers appeared. In large letters at the top was the word STOP. The object of the posting was a call-out of sorts, broadcasting allegations about its target. 
one who had, as one report relayed, grossly and infamously inflicted an irreparable injury upon the writer and his family, and had acted in a thoroughbred paltroon, acted as a thoroughbred paltroon, which is said to be a misspelling, that in consequence of his not acting even as a bold villain would have done, the writer felt it a duty to God and to man to exhibit to the world an errant coward, whom hell had vomited forth to infest humanity with his pestilent breath. Oh my. <laughs> right. You see why I had to include that. Absolutely. <laughs> it's one of those things where I'm like, I can't wait to read that on the air. So just... what did he do? Did he knock the sister up? Well, it seems like it was more like a shacking up situation. I don't know if there was any knocking up that happened. If there was, nothing came of it. Okay. If you get my drift yeah. one way or the other. So uh, he, actually, Kerwin, brought suit against Jones, the accuser with the flyers, and a compatriot saying he had done no more than sit in the same row of seats at the theater with the sister. And in that case, she had actually initiated that by moving from one row to his row. So he's saying, I just saw her at the theater, that's it. But really, he lived with her from 1837 until 1839. That's a difference. Yes, a little bit of a difference. Another little fun detail of this is that Kerwin, uh, like, Jones uh, uh, approached Kerwin and talked to people and was trying to get an explanation. He said he just wanted an explanation from Kerwin. And um, when Kerwin tried to avoid that, Jones tracked him down and horsewhipped him. Oh. <laughs> what a protective bro. But it's uh, it's funny that Kerwin didn't apparently try to get any charges on that. Um, just, just for the injure to his, his reputation from the flyers. Maybe he was down with the whipping. Maybe. So this was all before or very close to the same time that Maria married him, which was also around 1839, but we don't have really months for any of this. So she was very pretty with rosy cheeks, auburn curls. And we get that image of her from his artist's eye, his own portrait of his wife. Um, other than that, we really don't get much info on her other than that she's good looking. The papers yeah. take pains to tell us. She was a good swimmer, actually. I did see that in a paper. Good swimmer, yeah. We've got good looking and good swimmer. It's, there was something a little weird to me, um, and unique about having this image of her painted by her husband, um, as probably the most solid thing we know about her. It's, it's strange because usually... If there's a portrait of somebody, then they're notable enough for us to have other details of their life available. But with her, it's like, oh, we actually can see exactly what she looked like, at least through her husband's eyes. Uh, don't know shit about her. Nope. Not a damn thing. Except for swimming. And pretty. Pretty and swimming. Uh, I know that she was the daughter of James Crow, who was a lieutenant in the 2nd West India Regiment. Okay. All right. That's more than I was able to dig up on her background. <laughs> so... Father was military. No mention of her mother, though, so I really have no idea there. That was, that was the only thing I could find on her. Yeah, yeah. She, she is very much kind of a, a, just a ghostly imprint on the history books and no more. So um, the couple lived on Marion Street in Dublin together. He did have some of his work that was shown in some pretty high places, the National Library of Ireland and the Royal College of Surgeons. Now, that last one, he did a lot of biological drawings, like anatomy, um, or pictures, I guess, of various medical conditions. Um, I personally hope that he had to draw a lot of syphilis pustules at some point because he would have earned it. Yes, I do <laughs> hope that. So they start, um, you know, we're, 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 people talk about other people, especially their neighbors. Uh, and uh, so one of his neighbors was a Mrs. Byrne. And uh, she was not really a supporter of this marriage. She said, Kerwin took his wife to some strange place to destroy her. And then proceeded to claim that Kerwin was responsible for her husband's death, too. Oh, Everybody accuses this guy of murder, just left and right. It's funny how that works. So, but this marriage did have its challenges, like religion. He was Protestant. She was Catholic. Um, you know. I did see that because the one neighbor was like, I'm sure it was because they were different religions. Yes. Yes. That's why this all happened. Everybody was, you know, that there was some clinging to that point. Yes. 
another challenge was uh, the treatment within the marriage. He beat her savagely. She probably didn't like that. <laughs> Just saying. Um, and then also treatment outside the marriage because he had a mistress, Teresa Kenny, and seven or eight children. And I have to imagine that probably Maria was not super thrilled about that either. So well, yes, a few challenges. Maybe they might want to go to couples counseling. So it actually depends on which source you're, you're reading there, though, because in some, the women knew of each other. and others, they knew nothing of each other. And I have one source that says that Maria only recently knew, like six months or so. Well, and so I did find one source, actually, that says that Teresa Kenny's real name is Maria. Maria Teresa. Oh, gosh. I love it when they pick wives with the same names. And uh, there was a second house at Sandy Mount where Teresa, we'll, we'll just call her Teresa, resided. And in that source, they had eight children. And Sandy Mount is a suburb of Dublin. So this is not terribly far apart from each other. Yeah, so some sources are like they knew nothing of each other. Other sources are like they knew about each other and Kerwin would bounce back and forth between the two. Yeah, he was like, oh, I got to go away on business for like two or three nights. Bye. And then head across <laughs> town to his secret family. Or maybe not a secret family. We're not really sure. Now, Maria would talk to uh, people. She started to talk not so much about the abuse as around the abuse. She kind of liked to circle around it to see if she could get close. So she told her washerwoman, and uh, this from Gribble, Maria told a story of a man leading a woman on a bad life, of altered appearances of a man terrorizing his wife because she did not give him children. At one point, the washerwoman offered a line of condolence. Even the best would have words. So basically saying even the best people would have arguments. They are not words, Maria replied, but words and words. Maria did not go as far as to confide in any physical abuse to the washerwoman, but she did tell her a fact that stuck with her for weeks afterwards until she repeated it for investigators. Since moving to Houth, Maria said she had not slept a single night in the rented room with her husband without having the door wide open. I didn't quite get that part. What is the deal with that? She To run? I guess. So if she sleeps in the in the room with him, then she has to keep the door open? Or is he insisting on keeping the door open for something? I don't know. It's I couldn't quite figure out what that was supposed to indicate or hint towards. Maybe they had different rooms and she was not allowed privacy? Oh, that's a good possibility. Yeah, maybe they had separate, yeah, separate rooms. Hmm. Yeah, it must have just been, like, a fairly common thing for, you know, to shut your door. So, she had been opening up about the issues at home in recent weeks and months. Um, I think that's where we get the idea that she found out about uh, Teresa, Kenny, and the, the eight children uh, sometime around April. Uh, everybody does, like, like, just like we did, everyone who writes about this case speculates about, did she know? You know, did she know about the other woman and the children? Because the rest of the town did. Yeah. So, um, but there's, there's speculation in all the writing that she acted aloof and above it all to sort of give this impression of nonchalance, but really deep down inside she was humiliated. That's all kind of super speculation. It's impossible but, to know. So with that bit about what she told the washerwoman, I think that is so very telling that he would get upset at Maria because Maria was unable to give him children. And then would maybe attack her for that. Meanwhile, he has like seven or eight kids with his mistress. And instead of just being happy with that, he's still lashing out at Maria. Mm -hmm. Because she is not providing him with children. Because, I mean, his children are, are, are bastards, yeah. you know? So he still doesn't have the exact thing that he wanted. And that means, I guess, you should beat up your wife? Uh, mm. I don't get the logic from A to B here. Yeah. <laughs> the logic goes from A to Z, and I'm having trouble following that up a bit. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely an abusive marriage. It's, um, but it's definitely, unless he's also beating Teresa, it's a thing he can help. He could stop, you know. I mean, 
if he's going around beating every woman that he lives with, then maybe it's some sort of problem where he, you know, he's just a terrible person who can't help but beat women. Um, and, but if he's just doing it to Maria, then it's a, uh, you know, I hate you. Yeah. Or I'm mad at you. Yeah. So we don't really know what she knew, how she felt, uh, but uh, back at Ireland's Eye, uh, Patton Engel and William Burke Kerwin, so we're back at the island, we're back uh, with Maria missing, they set out to search for her. Nangle then proceeded to find her. She was on the east side of the island uh, on a rock. This from the Evening Post. Sprawled out on the sheets with the tide out, her feet in a shallow pool, her bathing dress dragged high under her plump armpits, exposing the lower part of the pale body. Do we really have to? Do we have to? Is it necessary to say her plump armpits? Um, spoiler, the woman is dead. Right. So let's not fat shame her goddamn armpits. This is ridiculous. Ha ha ha. So there was blood on her chest, her arms, her head, and also coming out of one ear. There was, uh, I mentioned a sheet in that quote. There was a sheet that was beside and partly underneath her. She was wearing her bathing boots, which were apparently a thing. But that makes, like, swim shoes. Makes sense. Yeah. But probably more boot-like. Um, and uh, it was low tide, and the rock jud- jutted out of the water six feet. That was the rock she was on. So they figured that was how she hadn't been swept out to sea. But, you know, maybe somebody expected her to get swept out to sea and just didn't understand how the tides worked. I don't know. So uh, Nangle went to his boat and got a sail from it, and then they wrapped up Maria and took her back to Dublin. They're sort of screwing up the investigation from the get-go here when they have a student who is not yet qualified as a doctor perform the post-mortem. This is James Alexander Hamilton, medical student. And his summation here is he stated that he had examined the body of the deceased. There were no marks of violence upon it. There were a few scratches apparently caused by the rocks. The body presented all the appearance of that of a drowned person. So this is the coroner's jury, and they come back with a verdict that she had been accidentally drowned while bathing in the sea. Now, later he would say that his autopsy had been, quote, somewhat superficial, which, when there's any question of murder, I think you shouldn't do anything superficially, maybe. Just a thought. Just a thought, yeah. Well, and also, the place that her body was found, that, that place that we were talking about, the long hole. Mm-hmm. One of, one of the articles I read was, like, women don't swim there. Hmm. That is not a place that women swim. And so, like, that kind of, like, stood out to me as well because, like, aside from the fact it seems really dangerous, it has a very rocky shore. Yeah. And so it's not popular for swimming, per se, there because it's dangerous. The The water can crash you into those rocks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense for her to have been there, but, you know, the newspapers called the death, interestingly, a, quote, melancholy accident. Mm. Which to me also has hints of suicide in that phrasing. Just I mean that yeah. If you want to commit suicide, jumping from a cliff into uh, waves that are going to crash you back into the rocks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, the funeral is held and the police attend it, and they do see a mysterious woman there. They follow her, and soon they've uncovered Kerwin's secret life. There you go. So now they're like, I think we have a bit of a murder on our hands. So the police start asking around, and boy, do they ever get an earful of information. Everyone had their own sort of origin story, almost, about Kerwin. He was like their Jay Gatsby, but, like, super murderous, <laughs> you know? If Jay Gatsby just did a lot of killing. This from the Evening Post again. The artist was said to be a thief who had escaped imprisonment on a point of law. He had sealed the lips of the murdered man's wife by paying her an annuity of 40 pounds. The police came across a story that Kerwin had murdered his brother-in-law, a man named Crow. The story ran that the two men had journeyed together by packet boat to Liverpool, but only one had arrived. Huh. Yeah, there's just all these stories about this guy and people who go missing and you don't know where they went. 
Well, it, it seems to me that he has had some success in the past of throwing the bodies into the ocean. That does seem almost like there's a pattern forming. And of course, of course, this just became more fuel for the grudge between Protestants and Catholics as this idea that maybe he had murdered his wife became more widespread. Protestants and Catholics decided to indulge in a tug of war Mrs. Kerwin had gone regularly to Mass. Her husband was not only a Protestant, he had upon occasion said some harsh words about the Catholic priesthood. So Mrs. Kerwin became a martyr to persons who persisted in seeing her husband as a monster. To, <laughs> to a smaller number, William Kerwin was a victim of the Papists. <laughs> oh, religion. You're so great. The police sat down with Mrs. Byrne again and worked some information out of her. Now this from Gribble again. This is actually from the police report. So this is like how they recorded what she said. And uh, they needed to learn what commas and periods were. I'm just going to say that. So here we go. The said Mrs. Kerwin told informant that she had lived a very natural, sorry, unnatural life with her husband by his not stopping home at night. And she had good reason to believe he had a family elsewhere. And sometime after she told informant that she had also good reason to believe that her said husband put poison in broth that had been prepared for her use for the purpose of taking away her life. And when she upbraided him with the offense, he threw it out and informed her that it was only alum he put into it and discharged the servant girl for apprising her mistress of the transaction. And in some time after, she told informant that her husband directed her to take a quantity of tincture of henbane. That was all one sentence. Wow. So uh, she consented and took all that was in the house. Then he, he just basically like tried to kill her a couple of times with some poison. <laughs> yeah. And, and somebody saw it and was like, Mrs. D don't, 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 don't drink that. He poisoned it. And she was like, oh, thank you. And he's like, you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much exactly what happened. Like she did the right thing. Hey, old-timey, crimey fans. If you're enjoying this story, you'll love what we've got going on over on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, where we give our beloved patrons five bonus episodes every month for just $5 a month. There you'll find content like our series on the Aurora Murderers, when a still to this day unknown killer roamed the streets of Aurora, Illinois, bludgeoning women in churchyards and cemeteries. As well as our weekly bonus episodes where we talk about stuff like the Halloween lesbian murder and London's all-female gang, the 40 Elephants. And then there's our monthly extra extras where we each bring a case the other hasn't heard of yet. With a theme like murder ballads, murders involving weapons from Clue, or Amber's favorite, fire! So come on over to patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. For over 150 bonus episodes and new ones coming every week, that's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Do it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so based on Maria Burns' statement, there are now three probable Marias in here. Um, I only had her last name earlier. They exhumed the body. Basically, uh, the, the main clincher here was not just the second family, but also the fact that she had heard some fights they had, and Kerwin, during the argument, yelled, I'll end you, I'll end you. Yeah, that's, that's usually a red flag. Yeah, a little bit. So, finally, they had actual doctors do a post-mortem, although the body was quite damaged. Uh, this, uh, this lovely phrasing here, the body was, to some extent, macerated. That kind of means, like, softened, uh, the archaic form of uh, waste away especially by fasting. So there's been a lot of decomposition here. Well, and so part of that was actually due to the way she was buried and the cemetery itself. Mm -hmm. So they put her in the wet spot of the cemetery. Which for a second, okay, for a brief second when I read that, I thought, oh, is he kind of honoring that she loved the sea and loved no. swimming? And no. then, yeah, no, I, no, yeah, I... I stopped being such a Pollyanna after about five seconds. 
No, they basically, they pulled the coffin up and then the coffin dripped water for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was not good. It was actually in nearly three feet of water. Mm. And uh, her grave well, was to have been selected by Kerwin himself, so... I'm sure that was an accident. That, that sounds super accidental. Oh, it looks swampy over there. My wife would love it. <laughs> so despite the decomposition, they were able to determine that Maria had died of asphyxiation due to strangulation. This was no melancholy accident, and they arrested Kerwin. The trial started almost exactly three months after Maria died. A lot of witnesses testified uh, Nangle really seemed to make an impression with the Evening Post. They told us his memory was sharp and lively. And here's a, a bit they gave us. He observed some scratches about Mrs. Kerwin's eyes, but there had been, this is from when he found the body, but there had been no crabs in the rocks. He said he did not care how dark the night was. He had searched the rocks and found none of Mrs. Kerwin's clothes. When her husband went up there, the clothes were found. Pat insisted no one could have been on the island after four o'clock without his knowing. So it's strange that her clothes weren't there, and then after her husband came by, suddenly they were there. One witness, actually, this is just, this is just for us. Um, one witness testified, for some reason, he had brought a sword cane to the island. A stick sword, as they call yeah, it. Yeah, I saw the sword cane. I was like, I'm not quite sure why, what that has to do with anything. But I'm glad they told us. Sword canes are just cool. I love a sword cane. But also, just to, to raise suspicion a little, is uh, shortly after, like several weeks after she died, he had his other family move into his nicer house that he was sharing with Maria. Yep. So, like, that is a huge red flag. Oh, I'm so sad I lost my wife. This is my new wife and our eight children. Yeah, the gigantic Gigantic red flag. You can see that thing from space. Yeah. So, and I don't know why people do things that are so goddamn obvious. Like, you really can't help yourself that you can't even wait a little while or move somewhere else, maybe, where people don't know that you've been living with your wife that you married 12 years ago. Like, start up somewhere else or something. Like, you, you, you it's just dumb. It's stupid. He probably promised the mistress. He's like, he's been trying to kill her for years now. Yeah. He's like, one of these days I'm going to kill her and then you can move in. I promise. Yeah. All right. She's dead. Come on. Pack your bags. Uh, then it was uh, time for the battle of the experts, which actually is kind of early to have that. Um, th this is pretty early on when they would actually start bringing in experts to testify. They mostly... <laughs> Freemason. Yeah. <laughs> So um, the doctor who did the autopsy, uh, they presented their findings. And then Kerwin's lawyer had a doctor on the stand saying, no, actually, she, she died of asphyxiation, but it was not caused by violence. So ju just like spon spontaneous asphyxiation? Yeah. Um, I don't know. That doesn't... Well, and I read one article that they actually had 10 doctors hmm. come up to the stand and say it was drowning. Huh. Um, and then there was also the idea that she had had uh, epilepsy, and it was an epileptic fit. Which nobody had ever mentioned before this exact trial. Yeah, it's, it's funny that that was not mentioned. Um, the trial lasted three days. The mistress did not come to the trial. I was very upset when I realized I had read that sentence the way I wanted it to be. Uh, I first read it as his mistress did come to the trial. And I was like, whoa, drama. And then I was like, no, there's a knot in there. Ah, like, oh, crap. <laughs> um, note that this was still during the time period when in Great Britain, the accused was barred from giving any testimony. So there was a, a very long time period where that was the case. You would be accused, but you weren't allowed to talk <laughs> to the people deciding your fate. Um, the jury goes to deliberate. And comes back with a guilty verdict. Now, Kerwin and all of his buddies, who tended to be of the wealthy, connected type, were pretty surprised by this. Uh, he was sentenced to death. And this, I had to bring in this speech from the judge. Did you see this? I don't think so, no. Upon giving him the death penalty, 
this is what he said, and it was very, I felt it was very eloquent and uh, really, I think, did some things to, in the way that they would back then, honor Maria. So, um, long quote incoming. Here we go. Now, William Burke Kerwin, according to the evidence and the finding of the jury, yours is not an ordinary murder, great as the guilt of murder must always be. You raised not your hand in daring vengeance against a man from whom you had received, or thought you had received, injury, provocation, or insult. But you raised your hand against a female, a helpless, unprotected female, one whom, by the laws of God and man, was entitled to your protection, even at the hazard of your life, and to your affectionate guardianship. That victim was the wife of your own bosom, in the solitude of that rocky island, to which you brought her on that fatal 6th of September, under the veil of approaching night, where there was no hand to stay and no human eye to see your guilt, you perpetrated this terrible, this unnatural crime. And what was your motive? He says about Maria, she was in the prime of her life. She was in sound health, and suddenly her life was cut short. No human eye could see how the act was done. None but your own conscience and the all-seeing eye of providence could develop this mysterious transaction. But the verdict of the jury has established that by some means or other, by violence and after a struggle, your unfortunate, unhappy wife became the victim of your cruelty and vengeance. It's really something. He really is like, now's my chance. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you what I think. I once thought myself a poet. (laughs) I've written some prose and now you must listen to it. Captive audience. (laughs) So, uh, Kerwin is, uh, sent off to, uh, I think it was Spike Island is, uh, where the, yeah, Spike Island prison. And his property was auctioned off in 1853. That popped up in the papers. Uh, it was some of the, um, like buildings, uh, it seemed like there were several addresses on the same street, which I think is the, the house where he kept, uh, the mistress. But they were not quite next to each other, so I didn't really know what was going on there. But he had a whole bunch of property. And then, uh, surprise, believe it or not, this did not put an end to the whole Protestant and Catholic argument. I know you're shocked. Uh, Regarding him, it heated up even more because there was a gallows being built. And apparently, these kinds of disagreements sometimes lead to violence. Who knew? So the Home Secretary said, okay, enough's enough, and commuted the death sentence to life in prison. So his, uh, his Mason friends also had a hand in that. So they were going around with uh, widely produced and circulated pamphlets to save his life and secure his liberty. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, when a bunch of Masons come to your door and ask you to sign a petition, <laughs> what do you do, huh? Yep, yep. So he was... Uh, overjoyed. He caught a a big break. He wrote to his mistress. uh, He said, you know, with my new life sentence, I'll probably be here for 15 years tops. So why don't we uh, get married? And uh, she said, "Mm, maybe see you in 15 years. I don't know. I'm out. And she headed to America, took all their kids with. That's got to be a real fun boat ride. (laughs) Eight kids in like steerage or something (laughs) on a boat. For what, weeks? I don't know. It took a while. It did take a while. <laughs> oh, that is uh, hell. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Yep, yep. And no cartoons. So she left, and uh, he didn't see her in 15 years, because he wasn't out in 15 years. But he was out in 27. He was released after being pardoned by Queen Victoria. But you know what? So while he was in jail, nobody feel bad for him. This motherfucker learned how to play the game. Mm -hmm. He really did. So first he's saved from being hanged. So he doesn't have to worry about that. And then he doesn't have to do hard labor because he had a very convenient bum leg. So he only was employed in light duty. Mm Mm-hmm. While he was there, he worked as a clerk in the hospital. He uh, arrived during the old system of the prison. So it was 
really, like, he got really, really lucky, did not have to do a whole lot of anything. He basically did, like, clerk functions and no hard labor and didn't have to, like, rotate anything because he was in the old system. Yeah, he got really lucky in his prison stuff. So it wasn't so much doing time as just sailing through time. Yeah, sitting around a lot. Yeah. Because bum leg. Bum leg. So, but William was released after those 27 years. And when he was released, he went to find Teresa. I guess if you uh, murder someone to be with someone else. You really want to be with that somebody else. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I guess if they uh, ghost you for three decades, it's maybe less of a deal breaker. Because, you know. Pretty much committed the second I committed murder. (laughs) And, you know, eight kids, whatever. So he found her and he was like, hey, you're still single. Let's do the marriage thing. Uh, So she had never found her Prince Charming or had been waiting for him all those years. I don't know. Dumb, but uh, so this was just fate. And so they married. Um, I'm, this is all I have except for one quote from Gribble. I really enjoyed uh, the way that they ended this tale. Uh, so very much in the fullness of time, Teresa Kenny collected a wedding ring and a husband and her children, a gray-bearded father who was a stranger from a world they could scarcely remember. So uh, I found that really interesting. Do you have any more on, on this case? I have one little extra treat before the... Uh, I, I do have one tidbit. So okay. apparently whenever he was released from prison, he didn't have the option to stay. They're like, get the fuck out of the country. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> they were like, you're not. I love it when they're like, you know what? You can't stay here. Just go go to anybody else's country. You're no longer Irish. Yes. Go celebrate St. Patty's with the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Um, I have some Dublin pubs. Just a few blocks from Maria Burns' home, she was the the witness, is the Ginger Man. There's the Long Hall, instead of the Long Hole, I don't know. The Confession Box, the Hairy Lemon, the Bleeding Horse. My. The Black Sheep. Okay. The Find Later. All right. All right, yeah. And on the street, where William... Burke Kerwin, or as I call him in my episode show title notes thingy, Killer Kerwin. <laughs> a bit of a spoiler, just a little. I dig it. Yeah. Um, the very street where he kept his mistress and children, pretty much across the street, is the Sin Bin. Oh. <laughs> it's, like, too perfect. It's too damn perfect. That is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Uh, I do have a recipe for you. Okay. It's a weird one because I'm definitely, like, not knowing where I stand on this. But I had recently just mind-wandering been kind of thinking, and and I was like, you know, I don't don't think I've ever had a recipe with cooked cucumber. You know? It's always raw. Who cooks cucumber? Teresa McGowan. Okay. This is from an Irish, like, heritage cookbook. Uh, Yes, the Irish heritage cookbook, 1984. But it was, I was really wanted something Irish, so that's as close in time as I can get. And it's Irish heritage, so, you know. Okay. Uh, by Mercedes McLaughlin and Marion McSpirit. They're M-M-M-M. Lots of M's. <laughs> yeah. And it's Teresa McGowan's Chicken and Cucumber. So we've got sliced bacon, butter, onions, uh, mushrooms, cucumber, four chicken breasts, flour, bouillon or stock, heavy cream, white wine, optional, and parsley. Cook bacon until crisp, crumble and set aside. My stomach just growled. Peel and slice onions and cucumber, trim and slice mushrooms. Place two tablespoons butter in pan and saute onions, mushroom, and cucumber until brown, stirring occasionally, set aside. Melt two tablespoons butter in pan and add boned chicken. Cook for 15 minutes. Sprinkle with flour and gradually blend in stock and cream. Add mushrooms, onions, and a cucumber, and cook slowly for five minutes until warm. Place on serving dish and sprinkle with crumbled bacon and chopped parsley. Serve with rice. They are using it instead of celery. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
That makes a lot of sense. Because with celery, that recipe would make a lot of sense. Okay. I wonder if cooked cucumber tastes similar to celery somehow or has some of the same flavor profiles or anything. Huh. I have no idea. I have no idea. I've never had cooked cucumber before. So. I, don't, I don't know that I want to try it, frankly. <laughs> um, but mayhaps someday if I have a recipe calling for celery, I'll throw in a little cucumber and see what comes out. Yeah, sure. Did you see any of the pictures of uh, Maria Kerwin? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I had one in my notes just to make sure that we saw her because the, the portraits, portraits are nicely done. They are very nicely done. I did have a little tidbit, and I don't know how true it might be. Okay. Um, but I did see about the uh, place where Maria was reburied. Oh, okay. So there is a small cross lovingly arranged to mark the plot, but she does not have a headstone, mm -hmm. according to this. Which makes me very sad. Yeah. But it it's also, um, she's kind of anonymous. Even though her name was all over the paper, not a lot known about her. Like, you mentioned a brother. I didn't see anything about a brother. Didn't see anything about her mother. Not sure if her dad was alive. Like, I don't think she had any family remaining. Yeah, I don't think she did. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, like I said, she's just an imprint. On the history books, you know, just like somebody scribbled on her page and then tore it out and you just see the, the ghostly remnants on the, the next page. Yeah. And I really feel like um, somebody should give her a headstone. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you on that. All right. Um, don't forget about our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey where we post weekly bonus episodes. And this week we talked about... Uh, a, another courtroom murder. <laughs> um, so that was fun. And Amber told a story of two, two murders. <laughs> and, uh. And the ties that bind them together. The ties that bind them together. We actually came up with a, a great episode title towards the end of it. And it was really fun. <laughs> and it just all kind of worked so perfectly. So for five bucks a month, you can join that and come and listen to all of that, uh, all of our recent stuff, but also the back catalog. And um, that's uh, everything, I think. So don't uh, take your wife to a island and murder her. Uh, don't stay with your husband after he tries to murder her. you. <laughs> don't blame her. <laughs> He tried to murder her several times. Like, you just remember the helplessness, helplessness of, of women in that time period. I know, but it's still just like, you knew. There was one woman who had any power, and she wore a crown. And even she got trampled by the patriarchy sometimes. Fair. So, all right. Uh, there's your do's and don'ts. And do have yourself a lovely day. Bye. Bye. Okay, my sources were uh, the Wikipedia article from Martello Tower and Eye of Ireland, the Evening Post, the Bristol Weekend, Joseph Grangier on Irish Legal News, the Freeman's Journal, Michael Fewer in the Irish Times, the National Library of Ireland by Abigail Wrigley, and um, where's the one that I mentioned? Oh, uh, Evening Post article by Leonard Grivnell. There's also a Gribble. There was also a book, Death on Ireland's Eye, the Victorian Murder that Scandalized the Nation by Dean Ruxton. My sources for this were the Dictionary of Irish Biography by Patrick M. Giogian, Wikipedia, The Irish Times by Dean Ruxton. There you go. All right. Boom. Done.